Next Chapter Podcasts. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to new. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend. The king of peace for Angelo. Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. Like a bird. On a wire Like a drunk In a midnight choir So we've been doing this podcast for almost three years In my way <laughs> Top five songs Since we started This is perfect like It's a perfect a song Listen to the other versions of it. We're going to talk about them later, but if, if you want, pause this and go like listen to the other versions of Bird on a Wire. This one's by Johnny Cash from his 1994 record, American Recordings. The first of like four of them. And it's also number 366 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam. My Sup, Fleece Army? You guys been coming to my shows in New York? I think I'm staying here, man. I don't think I'm gonna go back. I think I'm gonna go back and clear up my apartment and grab Lekka because my buddy Jake is watching Lekka right now. But I, uh, I think that this is gonna be home, man. It's not a hundred, but I'll find out later tonight if it is. And and if it is, I'll be happy wherever I am because we could do this podcast wherever. I mean, to the. Uh, to the, to the fleece army that's running strong, man. All the messages that you guys send me, because I think you guys know like how pissed off I get at some of the comments. And and uh, I'm just trying to you know have a good time and do this podcast. But it gets tough. It gets tough when uh, there's assholes out there that really think that I'm this music critic and they don't realize I'm just a comic trying to have fun, man. That's all I want to do. Listen to good tunes like this record. I mean, this, is, this couldn't have come at a better time, right? I mean, what have we been digging on? We've had some good music recently, but it's like sometimes you really need a record with just the singer and a guitar, and that's it. All right, I got some dates. Let's talk about those, party people. Oh, man, oh, chefs. All right, so first of all, you can see me any night of the week at The Stand, New York Comedy Club, or The Comedy Cellar. Just uh, check my social media, at Josh Adam Myers, and I'll have all the dates every day of all the shows that I'm doing. Thursday, June 24th through June 27th, I will be at the St. Louis Funny Bone. And Thursday, August 5th, I'll be at the DC Comedy Loft until August 7th. And then I have Moon Tower, I have Skank Fest, I have another really cool thing that I can't tell you about yet. But man, I am stoked about this. All tickets are at my website, joshadammyers.com. And uh, if you're on the Patreon, guys, join it. Patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. Support the show. Support the show. Support the show. I need a better apartment in New York than I'm staying in. So, you know, support the podcast, dude. Come on. Uh, all right. I already kind of mentioned the album a moment ago. Phenomenal. 
And we have a phenomenal guest to talk about it, a guy that is a huge fan. Uh, we've had him on already for Kiss, and he's the Roastmaster General, and he's a very good friend of mine, the one and only Jeff Ross. Lil Jeffrey Ross. The Roastmaster General, uh, a million specials, a incredible podcast called Thick Skin, the creator uh, with Brian Moses and Rel Battle of uh, Roast Battle, which is arguably... The second best show in Los Angeles, next to the goddamn Comedy Jam, which we're bringing back, people. We're going to be doing a New York one and an L.A. one, so stay tuned. Get your fucking vaccine so we can... Uh, hold on, Sickler. Hold on a minute. Sickler's calling me. Hold on. Hey, Ryan. I'm on. I'm taping my, my intro for my podcast, and you're on the air. Say something to the Fleece Army. What's up, Fleece Army? Get behind that fucking uh, 500. What, what episode are we on, John? 422,000. I don't fucking know. <laughs> oh, play <laughs> I'm going to call you back, all right? Well, we've got a drop-in guest from Ryan Sickler. How dope is that? Guys, this is a fun one. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free on all platforms and uh, wherever you get your pods, guys, we're doing it. And if you listen on Apple, give us a five-star rating and leave a review to get rid of the junk that's on there. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. You can always hear in the podcast when I start getting the hat in my throat. It, was, it always comes up right around the fucking Facebook group thing. Crazy Evan, whatever the guy's fucking name is. He vapes and he smokes a lot of weed. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Also, follow the dude that does our artwork at Young and Sick. He is the shit. I, I fucking love you, Nick. Uh, follow him. I mean, because he's he's killing it, man. He really is killing the artwork. I mean, look at the shit we dropped today for this episode. Every week, he kills it. He kills it. He kills it. All right. Nothing left to say, but you want to do it, Johnny Cash? Well, all right. I'm going to talk about it. Here we go with number 366 out of 500. American recordings by me, Johnny Cash. Well, you're back, bro. First it was Kiss, and now you're here for the man in black. Which you're kind of, you're wearing all black. Are you doing that in honor of Johnny Cash? I did wear my best black t-shirt today in honor of uh, this podcast because out of respect. Out of respect. I'm honored that you would have me talk about Johnny Cash. Oh, my God. Dude, dude, you could do any album. I'll bring you back on next week for Smashing Pumpkins, bro. Like, just fucking, you tell me. (laughs) Um, All right, so let's get into it. Let's get into it. So so Johnny Cash, and and I know you have a full cornucopia of the music that you love, but kind of lead me into, like, how it started with your journey uh, with Johnny Cash. Well, uh, my dad was really into Johnny Cash. Um, I walked the line and, and how high's the water? Mama, three feet high and rising. Like all those early ring of fire and, and uh, the Johnny Cash greatest hits, if you will, for a bunch of Jews from New Jersey was a big deal for some reason. Uh, made us understand a world we didn't necessarily live in. And um, it was eight tracks back then. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we weren't outlaws. We were just a couple of uh, caterers from the East Coast. But for some Jewish reason, Jewish outlaw caterers. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
and as <laughs> we did some outlaw shit. Like we would like we would bring in uh we would bring in McDonald's uh through the back door into a kosher catering hall. That was our idea of being an outlaw. And to be honest with you, um, you know, I always was sort of a a fan of Johnny Cash's greatest hits. You know, that's how I understood him to be. And I was obsessed with Bob Dylan, uh, you know, throughout my life. So they always had a, they had done songs and albums together and appearances together. So I got to know Johnny Cash. He had a variety show that I used to love the clips from, you know, he was comedic in some, in, in some uh, instances. And I always enjoyed that, but it wasn't until about five, six years ago that I was preparing to go to, uh, performing a, a jail, a maximum security jail in Texas, where they take their law enforcement just as seriously as I take my roasting, that I really dug deep into the legacy and the mission of Johnny Cash. Um, and I've even re- I even read this, uh, wow. Johnny Cash's autobiography. Uh, and I even uh, brushed up on the uh, Rick Rubin American Recordings chapter uh, in expectation of our conversation, Josh. Nice. And, you know, there's a lot to learn from Johnny Cash. He's not just a performer. He's a, he's a scholar. He's an experienced journeyman. He's a very wise dude. And um, um, his music, like all of us, it, it speaks to me. Have you, because I know, I remember I read this like comedy book a long time ago, right when I first started doing stand up. And I think it was the Franklin Ajay book. And he said something in the book saying, you know, whoever you're influenced by, you can take from everybody. It doesn't just have to be comics, it could be whoever. And, you know, I was like, you know, I love Lenny Bruce, I love Axl Rose, I love Scott Weiland, I love, you know, Chris Rock, whoever. And it's like, you kind of find to be this, you pull from everybody, like the stage presence of Axl Rose and the, and the realness of Lenny Bruce and the and the voice of Chris Rock. So have you ever pulled anything from Johnny Cash and like kind of implemented into your like persona on stage as the Roastmaster? What a beautiful question. And I'm, I'm honored by the question even. Thanks, man. Empathy, empathy, Josh. Yeah. Johnny Cash has tremendous empathy. He was a massive superstar yet he spoke to the common man. He wasn't above people. He floated through people and with people. And um, he had tremendous empathy when he sang his songs, whether they were gospel songs, country songs, or his stripped down American recordings. Um, But the fact that he cared about people without a voice, inmates, people that are incarcerated is really the proper way to say it. They're not prisoners. They're people who happen to be in jail. And I understood that from reading his stuff and listening to his music and even just looking at pictures of him, you can see the smile on his face. He doesn't always, he doesn't have that, that stoic rock star look. He, he cared about people. He was vulnerable. Um, I read his book, uh, Cash, the autobiography that he did uh, a while back, and he talks about second chances and and not judging people necessarily uh, by the one bad deed that they've done, but by their whole life and their whole heart. And I tried to bring that to my my um, Brazos County um, Jail special. I, I learned from that, and I didn't. In the special, I didn't ask people why they were in jail. I didn't ask them why they were locked up. Sometimes they told me, 
Sometimes they didn't, but I didn't want to prejudge people. Sure. Um, my opening joke, <laughs> uh, when I walked out in my full orange jumpsuit, uh, I said, uh, in a room full of, uh, uh, of the incarcerated, I said, uh, you know, people are in there for all different violence. I said, where my murderer is at. <laughs> and, you know, three guys in the second row in the first row raised their hands. And I was like, holy shit, this is going to be different than anything I've ever done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th there's always going to be a spirit of, of cash, of Johnny Cash uh, in the things that I do. Yeah. Well, let me ask, let's talk about this record in particular, because for me, it, it had always just been like Ring of Fire and what I learned from uh, the movie and, and just the history of, of Johnny Cash always being, you know, I, Morty, would you call it, I don't want to call it rockabilly, is it kind of like... I mean, I'll get into that in a second. But yeah, I mean, when he started off, he Rockabilly had just started coming together. Elvis Presley was just coming out and the Sun Records idea was Johnny was a gospel guy. And then he came in and they were like, yeah, that stuff's gone. Youth culture's taken over. And he went away and then came back and was like, now I'm Rockabilly. So um, when he first started out, it was like that. You know, country music, it was just called music. You know what I mean? It wasn't compared to anything else because that was just what they played where they were from. Yeah. You know, so like you played, you know, there was a dude with a fiddle and there was a dude with a string bass. That's just ah, what music was God. at the time. Miss the fiddle. God, I missed the fiddle. We need more fiddle music. Nobody? You guys aren't with I, me on the fiddle? <laughs> I, I, am, I am. I know some great fiddle players out there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of good uh violin all over rock and roll so well, we know yeah. remember in the jam we used to have we used to have that guy jay golden that played the yeah. uh, the flying v uh, jay was a motherfucker man he was a motherfucker uh egomaniac and, well you uh, know <laughs> he's got a lot of cash in him <laughs> he's got he, yeah he did he definitely had a lot of cash in him uh the when he was cash when he was on drugs off the top of my head i can tell you three of my favorite female fiddle players megan mullins down in nashville used to play with big and rich and and um, a lot of other really popular artists. Um, there's Ada Pasternak, a friend of mine, who plays uh, her original songs on her violin. And there's um, Jesse Green, who plays with the Foo Fighters and a lot of other bands. So I'm all for the fiddle, man. All for the fiddle. I am it's all for the fiddle. It's the name of my next comedy <laughs> record, All for the Fiddle. Uh, nothing, nothing gets a party going quicker than a fiddle. Player. Dude, if you break out, if you next time you have a party, bring the fiddle player right when it's like 1.30 in the morning. Everybody's a little <laughs> little stoned, a little high. You just because I know you like to do the music stuff. Just be like, guys, got a surprise for you. And then she kicks open the door and just fucking shrizzeds on the fiddle, dude. That'd be the party of the year. Party of the year. Now you've inspired, right. you inspired me to go get a joint. Hold on. Go get a there joint, go. dude. Uh, while, while he's well, sparking a doobage, dude, is a great Lily Hayden's another violin player. Her mom actually dated Lenny Bruce at the end, Lotus. But here's the cool thing. She used to play at the Viper Room. She's an accomplished violinist. Gibby Haynes from the Butthole Surfers, it just ties into the Viper thing, used to get up on stage and he'd be like, we'd be jamming together. And he'd go, where's that bitch with the fiddle? And she was like an accomplished violin player. <laughs> it was just crazy to hear him say that. With the fiddle. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. All right, so so let's get into let's find out a little bit about yeah. this history, uh, and then we'll get into our opinions about the album, and then we'll do some tracks. Morty, why don't Ruby. you? Okay, so released on April 26, 1994 on American Recordings and produced by Rick Rubin, this is the 81st album by the country what? rock and roll. I know, 80, 81st album. I think that's but, the most amount of albums we've had so far by one of the artists on the list. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous when you think of that, because that's like, wait, how many? That's how many a year? Since he started, ninety four. How many of those were on painkillers? It's like, yeah, exactly. They gave him <laughs> out, man. So yeah, by the eighty first album, eighty first album by the country rock and roll rockabilly blues folk gospel legend, born J R Cash into a poor cotton farming family in Kingsland, Arkansas, in nineteen thirty two. By the time he was five, he was working in the fields and singing alongside his family. He is a member of a huge musical family, and he was taught guitar by his mom at 12 years old, which was the same year that Jr. was profoundly affected by the accidental death of his beloved 14-year-old brother, Jack. And about overnight, he becomes this like introspective loner. Now, although his oldest brother, Roy, was already a working musician, it wasn't until Jr. joined the Air Force in 1950 and was stationed in Germany that he bought his own first guitar, on which he immediately started writing some of his most iconic songs. The Air Force is also where he took up the name John. They became John R. Cash. A few years later, he's out of the service. He's got a wife. He's got a family. He has a couple jobs. He wants to be a radio announcer, but he really wants to pursue musical, you know, his musical dream. That dream comes true. He goes to Sam Phillips, Memphis record uh, company's Sun Records. Uh, Sam passes on him because gospel is there. He goes, yeah, that's not what we're into right now. Comes back a little later, says he's into rockabilly. It's 1955. He becomes a Sun Records artist, along with like the greatest lineup of ridiculous Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. And I mean, just like a ridiculous, you know, uh, group of artists. Soon, his famous baritone-based vocals, his man in black persona, his dark songs of outcasts and outlaws, and his simple but direct live introduction, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash, made yeah. him a worldwide, a worldwide oh. star. <laughs> and wild. Yeah, he's completely <laughs> worldwide. We fast forward, we have 40 years of fame, fortune, highs, lows, movies, TV shows, addiction, recovery, relapses, serious health issues, and a long fallow period in the weeds of the music industry. And then he's dropped from his record deal after 30 years. Can we just so, stop for a second? Yeah. I'm not to cut you off, but Morty, I've known you for years. You've been on the podcast for about six months now. You, that was the fastest you've ever skipped over 40 years. I mean, you know what? You history. want me to barrel? I could tell no, you no, all no, the no, little no, shit. No, 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 no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was because you know I'm going to tell. He, tr- he tried wearing purple for a while. It wasn't a swimming. No, no, he go back, back to black. Get us to 40 years, dude. Get us to yeah. 40 I just want to get us to here. So the only success Perfect. he really found in that period in the later time was when he was a, a um, he was a part of a, of a country supergroup called the Highway Men, which included, now look at this lineup, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and Chris Christopherson and him. And that's really the only success he has in the later career. So despite this comparatively waning popularity at the time, he's inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 92, and he's one of only a handful of country stars ever to get that invitation. 
Same year, Rick Rubin sees him at this Bob Dylan tribute concert. And he's like, Johnny can have another career. Uh, he can have like a part three to this career. So uh, Rubin offered him a record deal with now. Remember, it was called Deaf American right up yeah. until this point. It was all hip hop and like anthrax. And yeah, Slayer. the Danzig. Was, and yeah, yeah it's <laughs> so it was, you know, Deaf. It was Deaf Jam, Deaf American. Then he just drops it, becomes American recordings. And yeah. he guarantees him to get him because, you know, obviously Johnny's skeptical of this dude with the beard and the whole deal. So he guarantees him a wealth of artistic control and a chance to make his first true solo album. And that's absolutely true. It's a minimalist. It's a Spartan endeavor with just Johnny and his guitar intimately singing and playing. They split the recording locations between Johnny's Tennessee cabin and Rick's living room. And at the time, Johnny Depp's Viper room uh, for a couple of songs. This is a collection of covers, new originals and revisited older material. And it only took cumulatively, it only took eight days to record. And to say it was a comeback would be an understatement. It's met with near perfect critical acclaim. And despite not charting high or being much of a commercial success, it won Johnny the Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Folk Album. And it not only revitalized his career, but it both humanized him and revived his legacy. It was followed by three more American recordings volumes during his lifetime and two more posthumously. Tragically, Johnny died of complications from diabetes in 2003. And then four, uh, this was four months after the death of his beloved wife of 35 years, June, June Carter. Um, in 2005, the movie of his life, Walk the Line, starring Joaquin Phoenix and River, uh, uh, what's her name? Reese Witherspoon. Reese with, yeah, River Phoenix, wasn't River it? River Phoenix. And, and Re, Re, he died speaking, in the Viper room. Speaking of, yeah, speaking of the Viper room. Let's do that again. In 2005. <laughs> oh, no, keep it. It's okay, great. in 2005, the movie of his life, Walk the Line, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. And River Phoenix. Yeah, and Re, yeah Reese Witherspoon, <laughs> the, most, the most Jewish name ever became the then all-time highest-grossing music biopic, bringing his story to countless new generations. He remains one of the best-selling musical artists of all time, with over 90 million records sold. So my main question out of, re out of hearing all of this, before I get into my opinion about this, is if his brother doesn't die the way that he died, because I saw in the movie, does Johnny Cash have this career? Does he get into music? I mean, is is all of that what turned him into the man in black? Just to catch you guys up, how he died was he got pulled into a table saw. I know. I know. I saw the movie. He dragged himself across like a dirty floor. Oh, God. And that's what got him. That's what really sort of killed him. And well, because so, yeah. I say that because and I know, Jeff, you've you've had some loss in your life and not to get too heavy before we even get into the album. But I don't know if I do the goddamn comedy jam or even this podcast if Angelo doesn't die. Do you know what I mean? I'm probably still just doing stand up and and trying my best at that. And, you know, when you have that kind of profound loss, especially on the level that Johnny did there, he was there. Right. When his brother passed. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that changes everything. I mean, in the book, Jeff, did he mention that? Did he talk about? Um, yeah, how he did. Yeah. Um, you know, I, when, when you know, I lost my folks when I was a teenager you yeah. know you're talking about your buddy passing away and these things they shape us you'd still be an entertainer buddy but you might not be the same entertainer you yeah. know you don't know if it'd be better or worse it's just different it's just different and it gives us a depth you know i really rely on the pain that i've experienced I, I thought about this the other day like i'm doing good right now but I don't let myself feel sadness anymore. I protect myself so that I could help others, make people happy, get laughs, 
yeah be a good friend boyfriend brother uncle you know that you start to protect as you become more yeah more responsibilities we put on these sort of we 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 uh we protect ourselves it's almost like a bullet an emotional bulletproof vest uh i keep the haters out i keep negative energy out as much as i can and it shapes us and that's why he became the man in black a man who cares about the voiceless the downtrodden the sad the poor there's a sort of woody guthrieism to johnny cash um and i don't and, and i see it also too for some reason um, I'm out here in Yellow Springs right now at Dave Chappelle's summer camp. I'm hosting some shows um, with John Mayer and Saget, oh, wow. Dave, um, and Chappelle has that sort of common man, Pied Piper sort of mystique about him that Johnny Cash has, um, an outlaw. We're doing shows in a cornfield that's been shut down three times, doing shows in the rain. Just people are so hungry after a year and a half of no comedy. Um, they really appreciate just hearing laughs, jokes through a sound system. And I got to think when I think about Johnny Cash um, doing those shows in the jail, uh, in the prison, in Folsom Prison and other places, um, how starved for entertainment the audiences are uh, when, when they're locked up. And I remember that firsthand. And now we all see it, all the entertainers see it coming out of this pandemic, or maybe we're not coming out of it. Who the fuck knows? But um, it, it shows the importance of performing for people, giving them hope when there's no hope, Set, giving a, put a smile on their face, even if it's just for a few minutes. And Johnny Cash understood that. One thing he talks about a lot in his book is his fans. He always wanted his fans to be happy with what he was doing. He didn't want to lose his fans. When Rick Rubin approached him about doing these uh, stripped down recordings, these American recordings as they came out, um, Johnny was like, I don't want to be marketed to the rock and roll crowd. I don't want to be, I don't want to, don't try to hit me up. I am who I am at this point. He was old, you know, he didn't want to sell out his audience. He didn't want to, um, um, dismiss or, 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 or fool his audience. He wanted to, he's authentic. And I really appreciate the, the way he, he does that. And these Rick Rubin recordings, you know, I guess today we're going to talk about the first one, um, uh, it's just him and a guitar. Um, and, and he had been hoping and planning. Uh, he, he pitched that to Mercury Records once, another record label once. He could never get anybody to bite. They always wanted him to do other stuff with musicians. But he had this, he even fantasized about calling it um, Late and Alone because he wanted it to sound like it was late and it was just you and him, whoever you are listening to this and him. He called it late and alone. And that's how he sort of saw it. And then Rick Re Rubin came to him with almost the exact same idea. Uh, apparently they recorded like a hundred fucking songs till they got to this. Johnny Cash just with two mics, one for the guitar, one for his vocal, sat in Rick Rubin's house for three days and they just, he just played songs. And, uh, and Rick was hearing a lot of this for the first time. He admitted that he didn't really know a lot of these songs. His, he was, producing Beastie Boys and shit back then, the Chili yeah. Boys. And, uh, but he loved Johnny Cash and, and saw a future, a, 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 
a next chapter for cash. And uh, Johnny was very reluctant. He says in the book, he was very reluctant at first. Uh, he didn't, he didn't want to, you know, when Rick Rubin showed up backstage one night, um, <laughs> uh, you know, Johnny kind of heard him out. He said he sort of sounded like Sam Phillips. He saw something in him, but he figured, ah, you know, he's a young guy with a f- weird look. Uh, very weird, know, yeah. He talks about his beard never having been, and he said, he said, Rick Rubin showed up wearing clothes that would make a hobo proud. <laughs> Bro, I met, I met Rick Rubin at an Abbott Brothers concert at the Orpheum in Los Angeles right when I first moved there in 2007. I mean, just like literally wearing a dirty white t-shirt that was too big. There's probably like a Hanes. I mean, his hair is unkept and his beard's down to his nipples. And I mean, for me, I was like, cause knowing it's, he was producing the record. I knew it was him exactly. I mean, he's, he's just this, this Zen genius, you know, much like you, Jeff, much like you, because you're very Zen. You know what I mean? And I know how like open spiritually you are. Exactly. You do yoga, do all that stuff. Like Rick Rubin is on another level to be able to, to see, you know, with everything Johnny Cash has been through in his life and all the music that he's done, and then to say, you know what, let's get rid of all of that. What's powerful more than any orchestra, more than anything, just is just you and the guitar. It's, it's like, you know, I mean, I guess I get my opinion now. This record could not have come at a perfect moment in my life and on the podcast. It's like nothing against the albums we've been doing, but, you know, I needed a palate cleansing. And, you know, I'm, I'm right in the process. I'm in New York for the next two months, possibly longer. And I was at, I was trying to tell you this on the phone earlier. I, I was at Big J's. He lives in Hell's Kitchen. And we uh, watched the Wizards 76ers game around like 1 p.m. on a Sunday. I never get high during the day. And I was like, you know what? I'll get stoned. And then after the game, I'm knowing I'm going to walk back to the Upper East Side. I'm like, let me take another puff. I'll put my headphones on, listen to the Johnny Cash record. And I, I walked through, like, you walk up to 8th, then you go in through Central Park, and, I mean, it was like it was written for me. It, it, it literally, every single thing from, from Delia's Gone to uh, Why Me, Lord? I mean, Why We, me, I can't even say it. Why Me, Lord is a song I'm going to listen to for the rest of my life. Yeah. But it was like, I sat, Jeff, I sat and watched 75-year-olds play softball <laughs> for two hours, while I listened to this record and it was like, it was like a fucking Scorsese movie. It could not have been better music for what I was doing. Uh, that's like, beautiful. That's the way he probably intended it late and alone. It was just you and him and everybody else. You weren't, you weren't hanging with people. You weren't listening over speakers. It was no. late and alone. It was late yeah. in whatever emotion you were feeling and you were alone with Johnny Cash when you listened to that. And that's a great story, Josh. You know, I Thank think, you, you know, um, I feel like, I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, having headphones and be able to walk around, it's like something, you know, we had boom boxes when we were kids. <laughs> yeah. That didn't really work. Um, you know, if you wanted to listen to music privately, that was great for a party to get attention, to, to make scene. But the invention of like headphones, like makes so much more, so much more music relevant to our lives. Like when you can, you know, be on a, a, a bus, you know, just listening to Johnny Cash, it, it just you and him, when you can be, when you can be at the gym, listening to, uh, I walk the line and it, it motivates people and, and, but this album in particular stripped down. Um, the only person I really know 
that ever did this that I liked was Springsteen with the Atlantic City uh, acoustics uh, drive all night, you know, you know, State Trooper. They were these story songs, and I think Johnny tries to do that, especially in this first Delia's Gone. He he, he rewrote some of the lyrics. Uh, he said using his Folsom Prison imagination, he knew a lot about human depravity at the, at this point in his life. So uh, they opened the album with Delia's Gone, which is the story of a murderer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's a ballad. It's a murder ballad. It's, it's based on an old folk song. It was originally recorded by Johnny in 1962. Uh, here, play a little, play 105, because it's like, these are some fucking... First time I shot her, I shot her in the side. Hard to watch her suffer, but with the second shot she died. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. But jailer, Good God. <laughs> well, jailer, stabbed her under the titty. Jailer, God, Johnny, chill out, bro. <laughs> Great opener. Open big. You wanted to open big. He had Rick Rubin, and you know, I think it makes sense in a weird way. It's like if you do a classic or a pretty song opening up with your first album on a new label with this huge, incredible pop rock rap producer. Uh, you got to come out like a, with a little bit of like shock value isn't really the word, but a little like like a, a holy shit moment. And 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 Delia's gone, I think, kind of does that. You're like, holy shit, Johnny, he's not holding back. It's reminiscent of like shot a man, you know, just to watch him die. Uh, it, it feels a little like that. You're like where he's not really censoring himself in any way. Well, Morty, why did he why did he choose to re-record this? Well, that was the intention. You know, there's there's like four when you know who Johnny Cash is, there's only like two or three things you absolutely know. He's always wearing black. And then you get to the he shot a man in Reno just to watch him die and everything. So that's that's really what you know about Johnny Cash from the legacy, you know, from the, the looming icon. So they wanted something that that sort of had that in it. You know, it's like if you're going to have, you know, a, a rapper who talks about murder that's what you want them to open with is something that recalls the danger of that. So they, they made a concerted effort. He grabbed this old one so that he could sort of carry on that weird, mysterious, you know, dangerous persona from the line with, by the way, that's from Folsom prison blues. The shot, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And the beastie boys actually use that too. What, what's, what's funny about it is that it's almost like, I mean, it's kind of humorous too. Like, you know, you're hearing this and it's so intense, but to hear it the way he's singing it, it is kind of funny. Uh, I know we use humor. Uh, we were talking about loss, but but Jeff, would, would you agree that kind of like a sense of humor is kind of our defense against life? You know, that's why our sense of humor, if we don't laugh, we cry. You know, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, how many times have you cracked up at a funeral where you just oh. couldn't help yourself? Dude, Aunt Gertie, every time my Aunt Gertie, we had like five of her sisters, all the great aunts passed away and, and Gertie just would weep. And and at the last one before Gertie died, because she was the next one to die, she started hitting with the waterworks and I just nudged my sister. I go, there goes Gertie again. And it was like the levity that we needed just to kind of like, okay, you know, it's we've been through this rodeo again. We know we'll be okay. It's a part of life. But, you know, I think that's also just being Jewish. Like, we have a really good, like, you know, we, we find it. We find the humor when we need to. 
That's beautiful. Um, well said. You know, I uh, you know I just try to work through stuff, and I always find I've done a lot of shows in uh, war zones and you know military bases around the world. Some safe, some not so safe, and you know you realize that it, it's more than like what you know. It's a different type of you know uh, you know payoff you know we do gigs we're like what are we making how far away is it how much time do i have to do you get to a military show or like in this case a prison show and people want to see you so bad the best show i ever had was in guantanamo bay cuba uh <laughs> at the uh at the prison there uh not for the inmates but for the people who live there and work there and the guards and all that because they are just they were just prisoners on that island in some weird way and they're human beings and they're stuck on this place and me jim norton and tony woods did an hour each i think it was supposed to be an hour show but we just couldn't get off stage and uh, they wouldn't let us off stage and you know i think you know i think working in sad situations you know as a comedian you know how many times, you know, have someone said, hey, my cousin's sick or my uncle's sick and you call him, can you leave him a message? You know, people just want to be cheered up. You know, I told my audience last night down here in Yellow Springs, um, you know, uh, if you're the funny person in your family, uh, make your family laugh. If you're, if you're live by yourself, make yourself laugh and be kind to yourself because it's a tough time out there right now. You know, people are lonely. Uh, they're just starting to come out. Not everybody's ready to come out yet. Some people have been shut in so long. Um, I did my first road shows the other day in Phoenix, like real road shows, and it felt good to see people, but I wasn't really ready to like meet and greet and hug and mingle. I still kind of like went right back to my room and for some peace and quiet afterwards. Like it's, it's a process and during lonely times, um, I think people look to comedy and music to take them out of it, even just for a few moments. Oh, for sure. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think that, that out of all the, all the art forms that are going to come back in, in the biggest way, I think stand up is going to just, just take over again because, you know, we need to laugh. We've, we've all been cooped up and, you know, everybody's been through shit the last year and a half and, you know, it's, you could see it happening now. All, every show here in New York is sold out. And I mean, yeah, they're not doing a hundred percent, but even LA, all the shows, even like the, when they're booking in the belly room at the comedy store, I see they're selling out that. And it's all like comics that are all up and coming, but not like a huge name like you or Sebastian to sell it. This is, this is, this is our time to, to make fun of the. Here's a joke I've been saying. Comedy's going to come back bigger than ever. Music's going to come back bigger than ever. Close up magic never coming back <laughs> uh, no back up <laughs> don't pull anything out of my ear enough but get, get the fuck away from it you johnny cash i know we're talking about you scott here's what he said i found it real quick um uh the songs are about anything and everything a couple of them outright humorous to make josh's point another couple so dark they shaded into the psychotic Delia's Gone, for instance, originated in a levee camp holler on a Delta Blues song about the killing of a woman. Cash says, I wrote new verses to it to make a, a story song told by the killer. It was pretty strong. To write it, I sent myself to the same mental place where I found Folsom Prison Blues and being older and wiser to human depravity, 
picked up on some darker secrets that I'd seen in 1956. It turned out to be a pretty popular song with young audiences, though it made a lot of people uncomfortable. I got no big kick out of singing it, but it was one of those things I felt right about doing at the time, and it definitely had a place on an album whose scope was all the music that had made me, was all the music that had made me. Yeah, so uh, he, he embraces the psychotic part of Delia's God and even says that it's kind of funny. I mean, uh, 100%, 100%. There's a lot of humor on this record. But then you have like something like The Beast in Me, which I know it's written by uh, Nick Lowe, the British musician and producer. Uh, but I think this movie, not movie, this song is probably the realest on the record about him and what he deals with. Go and play 24 seconds in. Restless by day and by night Rants and rages at the stars God help the beast in me He keeps calling himself throughout the song, the beast within, you know, knowing the life that he's been through, what he's experienced, the drugs, the, the ups, the downs, like this song just to me, I felt was probably the most autobiographical on the record. Um, Morty, is there anything to add about this one? Yeah. Ironically, uh, Nick Lowe, uh, some of you guys will know he's, uh, he was in a band called rock pile and uh, he was an early, he's the guy who produced most of the Elvis Costello albums. He actually wrote Peace, Love and Understanding. And for 11 years, he was married to Carlene Carter, who is uh, Johnny's stepdaughter. So he was Johnny's uh, stepson for about 11 years. He actually played this for Johnny and his camp 12 years earlier. And when he, he, he hadn't finished a song yet, but he played it and they were like, yeah, nah, I'm going to pass on it. And so they passed on the song until years later. What's really interesting about this song is this is what's played over the end credits of the pilot episode of The Sopranos. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it, it found, it definitely, it definitely found the target audience, I think. Was he still around when that show came out? I wonder if he said, okay. Uh, he died that. in what, 2003? Yes. Yes, yeah, he was. Because the, the pilot episode, I think, was 1999. Oh, was it that early? Yeah, wow. dude. It's the Sopranos was on from like '99 to 2006. <laughs> wow! How cool is that? That Cash was a Sopranos fan. <laughs> wow! He's like, At I'm a, I'm a was, big fan yeah. of Big Pussy. <laughs> big Pussy is my favorite character. All right, hold on. Let me take one of my barbiturates. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like, or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to 
actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. All right, the next one I want to talk about, Drive On, uh, Mano Manashevitz. I love this song. This is about the brutality of Vietnam and the surviving soldiers' PTSD and guilt while pushing forward. This, in my opinion, is, I think it's the poppiest song on the record, but it also has the best chorus. Uh, New Jeremiah, play it. My letter read from Whiskey Sam, you're a walking, talking miracle from Vietnam. Drive On. It don't mean nothing, my children love me, but they don't understand. And I got a woman who knows a man, drive on. It don't mean nothing, it don't mean nothing. Thoughts on this, fellas, what do you guys think? I think this is just fun. I think this is a fun one. You know, it's like you, you can hear that he's laughing. You can know that he's having fun. When you when you get like to certain parts of that song, you just know it's effortless. He doesn't have to think about the words at all. You know, like it's just, it's perfect. It was like a reverse of Oki from Muskoki to me. Yes, where yes. He's basically like, and you know, the thing about Johnny, here's you have to know, he's he was not only a veteran because he was in the Air Force. He wasn't just a veteran and a patriot. He was fiercely anti-war. He was a protester at a time when it wasn't very popular for country artists to, to come up against America. Not only that, he would go, he went to Vietnam. He took June. They went to Vietnam at his own expense. And he lived near the base in a, you know, in a trailer to like be with the people. And then he would visit the, the soldiers in the hospitals when they came back to America. So, you know, he, he didn't he wasn't just bullshitting. I mean, the guy had he, he had an American flag on stage at every one of his shows that was in his rider that he had a huge one facing the audience. So oh, you got to give, you know, it reminds me on your, you know, you did. I saw your documentary Patriot Patriot Act. Yeah, thank you. That's like, that was very similar. And you've since, I'm sure you've done a million of those shows, but it was, you know, I saw a big parallel between that. Thank you. Um, you know, I heard, and I, I'm also a anti-war person who's been a, a million, not a million, but, you know, 25 bases and probably five war zones. You know, I respect the troops immensely. They fight for the right for me to talk shit for a living. So I bow down and, and they always thank me for coming. And, you know, I really should be thanking them and I do. But as far as cash, I remember uh, in his autobiography, he describes a friend of his as a patriot, but not a flag waver. And I think that applies to Johnny Cash too. He loves America. He'll fight for what it believes in. He'll put his money where his mouth is, and then, and, and he puts that flag up there uh, as a symbol during his shows. But he's not waving it like uh, blindly. He's not a blind uh, follower. Uh, he believes in America as a as a bigger thing than any issue, and I really admire that. And I try. I do try to emulate that, and it makes me. Uh, it makes me. Uh, uh, I put a flag outside my house. I'm, I'm a patriot, but I'm not a flag waver. Um, when I pose with the troops, I do this a lot. I can't help it. Make a peace sign with my fingers. Um, I'm very anti-American. <laughs> I'm very anti. No, I'm kidding. We're uh, fighting for peace. I mean, isn't yeah. that ultimately what we want? Oh, 100%. Um, all right, let's. I want to mention why me, Lord. I already said it earlier. Uh, this is a song. I'm gonna tell this to all the Fleece Army out there, man. If you do this, wake up in the morning, have a meditation, 
and then listen to this song immediately every single day because this is a reminder of how lucky we are for life and the things we have done this isn't my favorite song in the record but man is this strong uh chris christopherson wrote it it's it's incredible all right let's move on all right we got to mention 13 we got to mention 13 because dude so 13 was written by punk rock legend Glenn Danzig for Johnny in about an half an hour, and it sort of sounds like it. Uh, here, just just this has got all the doom and gloom of Danzig. Play ten seconds in. Bad luck, wind been blowing at my back. I was born to bring trouble to wherever I'm at. This sounds like it was written Got by a dude that is five foot three. Do you know what I mean? Only Danzig. You the Danzig energy, and you feel it from this. Um, what? How did that happen? Well, Glenn. I mean, well, you have to remember that that uh, uh, Rick Rubin had produced. You know, he he had produced the Danzig album. You know, Mother. You know, he he had worked with a lot of the metal bands. They all worked on the soundtrack to Less Than Zero. That's the thing. He put together a soundtrack and he brought in a whole bunch of different artists that he bangles and Danzig and Aerosmith and like all these people. So, you know, I mean, Johnny Cash is a legend. The thing that sounds so, it, you know, it sounds like if you were writing a song for Johnny Cash, it's almost like saying if you were writing a joke for Jeff, you basically understand who the icon is. So you would go, yeah, I bet it'll be about doom and bad luck. And I'm a bad motherfucker. And I'm a, but, you know, it, and to me, it's sort of it's like a parody almost like he's reading. He's singing a song written by what a young person thinks his legacy is. So he's like, you know, I'm bad luck and I'm blah, 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 without exploring that. And but the coolest thing about it is that Glenn got to Glenn basically told his dad, he's like, yeah, I'm doing this song for Johnny Cash. And he got his dad like an autograph picture. Aww. Yeah. Which I think is that that's where he cut down to that kid and all of us, <laughs> Did, you know, wait, have you guys seen there's a, there's a horror movie that's on stutter or shutter. Uh, it's like that app, that horror movie app. And it's uh Glenn Danzig's directorial debut. Uh, I can't recommend this to everybody. Both of you guys get well, you don't more to get stoned, but get stoned Jeff and watch it. There is a woman with like eight titties in it and it's, they cry. They have eyeballs. It's, it's insane. It is insane. But so being that we're talking about Danzig with uh, Johnny Cash, uh, Jeff, what's the strange, strangest bill you've ever performed on? Because I know you've got some crazy, you got some crazy ones because you, you do so much shit. Two come, a couple come to mind. <laughs> Very early in my career, I, I followed, uh, it was a Lou Rawls Parade of Stars at the Apollo Theater and I followed uh, Buddy by Nature and that was at the Apollo, that was intense. I, I once follow. I once uh, uh, did a show with Wu Tang, <laughs> at Clusterfest, where I brought them out, and then they brought me out after their hour show. Oh. And it was pretty great, and I brought out my nunchucks and did some moves, and and uh, I was Wu Tang Clan for the night. <laughs> That's too but easy. the one that really pops out out of me was um, I was doing a show at a. Uh, at, at Pearl Harbor military base with like 40,000 spectators, almost like a family show, but, but it was, uh, the rock was hosting and uh, it was Pearl Harbor's 70th anniversary. It, uh, it was something going on, a, a commemorative big show, Thanksgiving show. And um, Leonard Skinner went on and did four songs right before me. 
how do you recover? From, how do you? I mean, because the crowd, they're 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 doing fucking free bird, and then you got to come up and and like, how do you get them on your side? They did everything but Freebird. Oh, okay. I, I, was, I think that was only because I befriended them in the lobby of the hotel and said, please don't make me follow Freebird. So, you know, what's your name, little girl? All these other, uh, you know, uh, whatever they do. What's that smell? <laughs> and they have some huge songs. So what I did to, to follow them was I had to go big, right? So yeah. we're on an air base at Pearl Harbor, and behind the sh- stage um, was a giant aircraft carrier, like a giant Air Force plane. And I'm like, so my old, and I, and I came out in a full military, like George Patton, World War II Roastmaster General uniform. It was 40,000 people. You had to be big. And you had to fall rock and, and Kevin Hart and all these massive stars. So, uh, and Leonard Skinner, no less, who, mer- who just people went crazy. And, uh, and uh, I go, how mean is that? Making Leonard Skinner go on a show, <laughs> performing in front of an airplane. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Uh, you are awesome, dude. That is. Wow. Chef's kiss to everybody wow. that's not watching the video. That is fucking chef's kiss, bro. That wow. is. That's Thank you. <laughs> that was my way to, uh, to break the ice, get the crowd on my side and, get Leonard Skinner to love me, which uh, we had a mutual, uh, uh, I'm a big fan. So they were really cool guys. And, uh, you know, that was, that was, that was one of the weirdest bills I've ever been on. All right. Uh, oh, bury me not introduction. Cowboys prayer. Uh, I mean, this is a perfect cowboy song. Um, and this Johnny follows a 1915 poem with his traditional Western spiritual that he originally recorded in 1965. Go and play a little taste. Oh, bury me not on the lone prairie. These words came low and mournfully from the pallid lips. He's praying, he's praying, he's, he's, he's definitely channeling his seniority. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a country. I mean, this is originally actually written in 1839 as a sailor's song. It was called Sailor's Grave or the Ocean Burial. So they just kind of updated it, moved it to the prairie or, or wherever it is. But, you know, I mean, it's, this is probably, you probably hear a thousand of these cowboy, you know, late at night sitting by a cactus, singing about you know when i die don't bury me go god please don't bury me out here dude, dude you it's this is literally like music that should be played during a coen brothers movie do you know what i mean it's it's very buster shrugs fuck i loved it but i want to i want to get to this one because uh, this is in my opinion out of the year and a half well, two and a half years we've been doing this podcast this is this is top five songs uh bird on a wire uh, just play a little taste of Bird on a Wire. And if I, if I have been untrue, I hope you know it was never to you. I mean, I this this is so this is such a great version. Uh, but there are so many different versions of the song. So this is a Leonard Cohen song about uh, the human spirit struggles with internal and external pressures. Um, 
and it's described by Cohen as simultaneously a prayer and an anthem and a kind of bohemian my way. Uh, this this is out of all the versions that I've heard, because, dude, there is a Joe Cocker version that's incredible, uh, the Leonard Cohen version. And then if you if you guys want to dig into something fun, there is a Johnny Cash live with an orchestra version that I mean, this J- Jeff, this was the song. Watching those 75-year-old New Yorkers play softball, this is – I started tearing up. I was just so in the moment. Uh, It's a a perfect song. Perfect song. Thoughts on this, guys? I mean, Christofferson loved this one so much. He said the opening lines of it would be his epitaph. So that sort of shows you how, you know, how how much uh, um, respect – he has for this one. I mean, and you know, this is also one of the only, this is really the only song on the album where it's a cover that people knew, you know, I mean, if, I mean, if you know, Leonard Cohen, this is one of his most popular songs. Everybody knows hallelujah as like the most popular Leonard Cohen song, not sung by him, but bird on the wire is one of his, you know, one of his famous songs. So, you know, later we'll get into the other cover stuff that they started throwing at Johnny cash. But, you know, the fact that he did a Leonard Cohen song this early is, is you know, uh, impressive that this is the only real obvious one. Well, I, I think it's a, you know, proof right there of stuff we were talking about earlier. Like, here's a, you know, an East Coast Jewish songwriter, New Yorker, uh, making work that Johnny Cash, a Southerner, um, could understand, relate to, and in the end, make his own, um, adopt, if you will. So I think the connection is cool and it makes me feel like, yeah, if I want to put on boots and go perform at a jail, fuck it. I can, I can, I can get with that too. You know, that, you know, we're not all that different. When do you think the first time, cause being that this is about my way, when was the first time in your career you felt like you did it your way? Oh, um, it's a great question. Um, early on, I thought to myself that I didn't want to do cheap jokes and I wanted to, I wanted to try to make people from New Jersey, Jewish people, whatever I represent, I you know, show them in a good light. I, I didn't want to do low hanging fruit, Jewish jokes and stuff like that. Cause I was performing in Catskills and, you know, these sort of East coast where it would be easy to make more money getting cheap laughs but I knew that I wanted to be an artist that everybody could sort of relate to early on, but doing it my way, man, I guess it would be the roast. It would just be as I started finding that, um, finding, you know, what makes people laugh at themselves and being vulnerable myself. The joke I said last night was I gained some weight. I look like Howie Mandel. <laughs> <laughs> I look like Pitbull if he got attacked by a Pitbull. You know? <laughs> but if you can laugh at yourself, then you're one step closer to freedom is what I told the inmates at Brazos County Jail when I performed there. Uh, yeah. It's that vulnerability uh, that strengthens us in a in a backwards way. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest, to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snider and Huey Lewis, 
punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurwitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. I gave you props, too, because when my band was coming up, we were coming up, but we're about the same age. And I remember we, we just got our record deal and you had done the poetry stuff. Your poetry stuff was really where most right. people, you know, because it was Comedy Central and they featured, you know, for those that don't know, early Jeff Ross stuff had you basically like with a piano player and you'd riff and do like these these poems. And we're all the whole band's Jewish and we're all Catskill type guys. And we fell in love. And this is before you could look it up on a phone. There were no phones or anything. This was like, dude, you have to hear this guy's stuff. It's hysterical. And we would tell these to each other, you know, enough with the bread. And like, it became, cause it was our, it was where we grew up. Wow. These were, these were our, this is our family, you know? And then, and I'm, I'm glad it found it. So when I think of you, I go back to like, you know, awkward, curly Jufro on stage with the piano player, you know, like telling bits from our lives. <laughs> You know, that's just one. I just want to give you props for that because I don't, I don't, I don't think people bring that up enough. And my piano players played with you on stage at these some of these gigs <laughs> we've done. But you brought them up. Who plays piano? Wow. You come here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I used to do it like that. I really had no yeah. sense of showmanship. I was like, I would let anybody. I did complete strangers <laughs> on stage with me, and sometimes they were great, and sometimes they just were just wanted to be on stage and didn't know how to play. No. But I, it means so much that you remember that stuff because there's not many people that were around those small clubs in New York and those late night uh, comedy centrals and late night spots uh, uh, on late night television. That was a really, uh, that that's probably the best answer to Josh's question, which is when I started doing poems and, and trying to work music into my act and love poems, you know, I did decide early on that I didn't want to be a comic that was like a buzzkill. I'd see comics who were angry. They would talk about divorce. They would talk about uh, herpes. They would talk about like they, they would shit <laughs> on the opposite sex. And I was like, I want to be like Buddy Hackett. I want to be a wingman for every there. I want to help everyone break the ice, get laid that night and come back and see me again. You know, like I was I always wanted to talk about stuff that was fun and sexy and and uh and and brought people together as opposed to pushing them apart no i mean in and not to case you asked jeff but i don't think you realize like how many people you've helped especially during the pandemic because i watched a lot of those instaros and you know <laughs> that you you really man it's like you've you know you you know what it's like when you meet that that's that that musician that you love because i know how much you love music or that artist that you're like oh god i appreciate his work and you meet him and it sticks with you having you roast these families that are all over the world you know you you probably they're still probably talking about it like i was on a fucking insta rose with jeff he said i looked like you know bert and ernie you know kid or whatever the fuck he said and it's it's brilliant and it's just great man it's great thank you um thank you both thank you josh my pleasure. All right, let's guys. So let's mention Tennessee stud because it's recorded live at the Viper room. And I did dig that because you get to hear like, can you imagine how fucking cool that show would be to see live wow. like at the Viper room, Johnny, you know, Johnny cash. So, all right, 
moving on. So then you got down there by the train. I love his voice in this. Uh, you know, this is like the Danzig track, but this is a Tom Waits composed song. It was commissioned by Rick Rubin specifically for Johnny. I don't think it could have been written or sung by anybody. Uh, do we want to hear it? Or what do you think? Is there anything you want to add to this morning? I mean, it's not my favorite. I mean, the one thing we were talking about Pearl Harbor and uh, this was actually recorded on December 7th. This was uh, Tom Waits' 41st birthday. It's also my birthday, so I'll always know Pearl Harbor Day. But yeah, I just think that was kind of cool that Tom Waits, he only, the only people that got commissioned to write it for Danzig and Tom Waits to write songs oh, for wow. Johnny Cash for specifically at this point. And they had their records done. So it's kind of cool to be able to be like, oh yeah, and then Johnny recorded my song on my birthday. You know, Dang that's it. Cool. Oh man, that's a trip. <laughs> then you... All right, then we have Redemption. Um, that's a good one. Not my favorite. Old, very Old testament -y. Like a Soldier, great song. Uh, all right, let's do the final track on the record, uh, The Man Who Couldn't Cry, because this is, this is a funny one. This is that humor we were talking about, and I feel like we have to mention it. It's very tongue-in-cheek. It's a piss take of a traditional country song by, let me get this right, Loudon Wainwright, and was recorded live once again at the Viper Room and ends the album on a very very darkly humorous note uh peter play it well his novel was refused and his movie was panned his big broadway show was a flop he got sent off to jail you guessed it no bail oh but still not a dribble or drop all right, thoughts on this, boys, because it, it details the protagonist's life of an immeasurable loss and misery until he gets to heaven and is rewarded with everything returned, including revenge on his detractors. That is great. <laughs> thoughts, boys? My one regret in life is that I'll, my, my one regret in life might be that I'll never get to roast Johnny Cash because I would have had some good jokes about him. There's a lot there, not, you know, but let's face it, like his rebuttal would have been unreal. Like he was so funny. He was so darn funny. He would have just, just to see him be self-effacing and self-aware and then ripping at his friends and family would have been so fucking funny to watch. <laughs> Did you ever get to meet him? Uh, Did you ever get to meet him? No, I never got to meet John. Oh, I have friends That's that became bummer. friends yeah. with him, like musician guys, the kibitz guys. Actually, were like, yeah, I became friends with Johnny Cash and the family. And you're like, what? That's like people became friends with him. Like it's just such an incongruous thought to me that there could just be younger guys that were just like, oh yeah, I talked to Johnny and stuff. Just he seemed mythical. And I think what's interesting about this one is called "The Man Who Couldn't Cry" as sort of a career revitalization. Remember when I told you he went to Sam Phillips and Sam Phillips was like, yeah, gospel music is, you know, not happening. So he left and he basically uh -huh. wrote Cry, Cry, Cry in 1955 to prove to Sam Phillips that he could do like the rockabilly thing. And that became his first hit. So I like that. It goes from the man who couldn't cry as like a bookend to Cry, Cry, Cry as being like his first, you know, the thing that actually got him the gig. I love that. All right, let me ask you real quick, Jeff. Have you ever roasted anybody so badly that they cried or you felt bad about it afterwards? Um, Danny Aiello cried at his roast. No way. Yeah. <laughs> sad? Like yeah, sad he, cried? He said it, he, well, I, don't, I mean, I think it was a combination of things. He, you know, he claimed later that it was he was missing his 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 uh, his dad. Uh, 
but uh, I really think it was Richard Belzer reading the reviews right out of the newspaper of of his of Danny's new CBS crime drama Della Ventura that really made. It. <laughs> I remember that show. Oh my <laughs> god. I said, Danny. I said, your 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 acting was so over the top in that in that show. They should call it. They should have called it Ace Delaventure. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, you're good, dude. That is brilliant. Um, all right, let's do some facts and get out of here, Morty. What do you got? Yeah. So, like I said, this is like the song "Bird in the Wire" is really the only cover that people like would be able to go. Oh yeah, he did a cover of a Leonard Cohen song. After this and the American recording success. Uh, you know, Rick would bring him stuff. He covered Nine Inch Nails, U2, Soundgarden, The Beatles, Tom Petty, Depeche Mode, and Cat Stevens. You know, so those are the ones you guys know. You know Hurt, and you know a Personal Jesus, and but you know, got kind of parody-ish by then to me. Morty, I think, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I love Nine Inch Nails. They're one of my, you know, I'd say top thirty bands. I love them to death. But I, I think the, I think the Johnny Cash version is better than the, uh, than the Nine Inch Nails version. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, there's like I said, there's something to be said about taking somebody who has a mythical voice and a mythical iconography and then going, well, what would you do if you were Johnny? You know, people have done that all the time with Elvis Presley. If Elvis Presley had lived, there was a there's a guy called The King who did this and he put out like Pink Houses and he did covers of like these songs that, you know, Elvis would have done had he lived years later because it just fit who he was and what he said. So I think at that, by this, by this point, it's got a little parody to me, you know, it was a little too like, let's do personal Jesus. No, because you I, know. Jesus I heard, no, no, I, I heard that. I, yeah. I just listened to that version earlier today and I was yeah. like, yeah, got a little, it got a little like, you know, who do a good cover. No, no, but doesn't necessarily. What if he did more pop songs? Like oh, I'm bringing sexy bag. <laughs> That would have been great. <laughs> I want it that way. <laughs> From the windows to the walls, sweat dropping off my balls. Oh, skate, skate, goddamn. It's a oops. I did it again. What's the greatest roast joke you ever wrote for somebody that they turned down? <laughs> that they turned down? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, for you know, people that don't know, you write a lot of the roast stuff for the non-comedians at the roast shows, right? People don't turn my jokes down. <laughs> but nobody's ever looked at it on the I, card and went, oh, God, I can't do it. No, no, I, I don't. I give them jokes that they're going to do and they go, thank you. Can I have another one? Can I have another all right. Well, what's what's the what's the greatest roast joke that you wrote for somebody that you never said that you've you're so proud of? Oh, okay. Um, I, I roasted uh, William Shatner, and uh, it was a really fun roast. And Betty White was there. Betty White was there, and Farrah Fawcett was there. And and uh, um, I said, Shat speaking of Shatner, Betty White just shat in her pants, and I was like, <laughs> that gave me like that gave me like you know, carte car blanche to go in for the kill. And I see Farrah Fawcett there, and um, I wrote a bunch of jokes thinking, like, she's going to look old and terrible. Like, I was in love with Farrah. I had all her posters, her all her pictures in my room when I was a kid, little kid. I love Farrah Fawcett. I wrote all these jokes about how, you know, she's old now. And I get there, and I was so love-struck that I couldn't get the jokes out. Uh, so I had to cut them at the last minute because I just still loved her instantly. And uh, one of the jokes was uh, Farah, um, 
you know, when you were a kid, um, uh, my, it was something like my parents told me if, if, uh, if I kept masturbating to your pictures, I would go blind. And now that I see you, uh, in person, I wish I had, (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. but I just didn't have the heart to do it. So she was too pretty. Oh, rest in peace. Rest in peace, Farah. Oh, dude, how bad I felt so bad for her too, man. I felt so bad because she died on the same day as Michael Jackson. And it's like, it's just, she needed her own day. I mean, she could have died one day or or three days prior to give her the respect that she deserved because anybody would have been dwarfed by the Michael Jackson death. You know what I mean? mean, In a weird way, in a weird way, we missed her death and to so many of us, she's still alive. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you're not wrong. All right. What else you got? Uh, Mortician. Okay, so the next, so the next one, uh, just a real quick one. The album and the artist, obviously, he's quintessentially American. The name of the thing's American Recordings. The cover photo of him with the two dogs, Tess and Ted, was actually shot in Melbourne, Australia. Hmm. So the cover that that very so dark. It's a great photo too. Yeah. It's a really cool photo. Um, all right, what else you got? I also have two dogs, and now I want to make an album cover. Um, Jeff, you have to do that photo. You you are you're you are the man in black. Yeah. You have to, bro, do it. Jeff, that is, that is like, put that on your fucking website. Like that, put, that's your next album. That's your next special, whatever it is. black trench coat. And you know the photographers too. You know who you could, you could get, you could just do any one of the the comedy guys that are shooting out or even go bigger. And dude, that's, that would be beautiful. Oh my God. Better have a poster. Oh yeah. All right. What do you got, Morty? So Johnny was, uh, we talked about, he was a huge proponent of prison reform. He played on so many free concerts at at prisons. Two of them are his best-selling albums, 1968's Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison and 1969's Johnny Cash at San Quentin. We already know from the Merle Haggard, the Merle Haggard episode, Merle was a prison inmate and saw Johnny at the show, at at the, I believe at the 68 show at Folsom. And so he was in the audience and it helped sort of get him to realize that he could do it as well. So you never know who's listening, guys. All right. So, all right, Morty, you got one more? Yeah, this one I think is incredibly touching. For June's, we talked about his, his wife who had passed away shortly before him. For June's 65th birthday, the year that this came out, Johnny wrote this in a love letter to her. We get old and get used to each other. We think alike. We read each other's minds. We know what the other one wants without asking. Sometimes we irritate each other a little bit, maybe sometimes take each other for granted. But once in a while, like today, I meditate on it and realize how lucky I am to share my life with the greatest woman I ever met. Now, that's just beautiful by the way it is. In 2015, it was a a British Valentine's Day survey. Put this one above letters from Richard Burton to Elizabeth Taylor and from Winston Churchill to his wife as the greatest love letter of all time. I think if you're going to end something with somebody who's always thought of as just sort of the killing and the dark and the prison, but the love he had for his wife, I mean, he was also apparently kind of <laughs> shitty about it, but do you think he had, think he had to send it to somebody for them to edit it. And they were like, Hey, can you, you maybe you should take out the part yeah, about punch this up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm going <laughs> to shoot you in the titty. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm going to shoot you with my gun of love. First time um, I shoot you will be on your mouth. You ever written a love letter, Jeff? I have, I have. Oh, yeah. Very cathartic. Put it all down on paper. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done a love letter. 
Morty. Bullshit. Oh God, I'm no, a I'm fucking serious. songwriter. I've, I, no, no, I've well, I've I've written, like, I've written I've, hundreds of them. I've met. Yeah. yeah, well, you're a you're a fucking lunatic. So, I can only well, they're like Tommy Lee <laughs> love letters. Like, babe, I love you so much. I can't wait to get into your ass. That's yeah, a good the one. kind of stuff can that I he would that? write. <laughs> yeah, let me let me punch it up for you. You got to wear you got to wear your sunglasses on your head when you give it to her. Baby, when I knock my boat horn with my dick, I think of you. All right, uh, we got we got three three or four questions real quick, Jeff, and then you're out of here. Okay. All right, favorite song on this record? Uh, Delia's gone. Okay least favorite song on this record mm, i don't know um probably the really uh, religious ones because it just doesn't speak to me sure sure uh what song on this record would you fuck to um i'll tell you in a second oh beast in me Ooh, all right. Uh, and final question. Uh, does this record deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list and why? Uh, I do. I do. I do think that because it started this whole um, run of him doing music with Rick Rubin, which I feel like uh, helped return a lot of people onto Johnny Cash, me included, to see him not always as the uh, the country star, but also as this folk hero. Um, the idea that this music uh, comes right from him and his guitar and there's no other instrumentation on there gives it an intimacy that will connect Johnny Cash to his fans in a way that very few artists can pull off. So I, 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 I think this is a well-deserved a member of the 500 club this album no i completely agree i, I completely agree i'm mean, I already saying it's praises at the beginning but uh, uh this this is a powerful record this is you know i i think exactly what johnny cash needed to do at that point of his career it's cathartic it's it's beautiful it's deep it's funny uh, and it's just good. And it makes me want to listen to the other three American recordings albums now. Um, and to everybody out there, all the Fleece Army men, listen to it because it's they're great. Uh, Jeff, I can't thank you enough, buddy. Uh, anything you want to promote, man? Nah, I'll let this be Johnny Cash's day. Uh, I was an honor to be part of it. If anyone wants to see my jailhouse roast, they can watch Jeff Ross roast criminals on Paramount Plus or the Comedy Central uh website um it's been an honor fellas oh this has been great morty what do you got to promote yeah so uh just find me on twitter dj morty coil uh go to the instagram watch b and daddy cartoons sing with your kids out there you'll hear all kinds of these songs um <clears throat> fokker force five if you guys were on facebook live every uh pacific standard time jewish standard time about 8 15 ish on tuesday nights if you want to watch live music for hours with guys playing it who've played with a lot of these people when are you and back when are you back at when are you back at the kibitz i everybody asks us uh, i don't know man whenever canters uh is okay with it and wants us to chase the people that have shown up again out uh big shout out to jay san j dash san he's at law dude l-a-w-d-o-o-d He's a Fleece Army guy that's always big upping. Blow up this episode, Jason. It's a Jeff Ross episode. And uh, we want to give shout out to all our guys. 
you know, because I mean, our guys and our gals, all the police army, because they really are keeping this thing going. Oh, I, they, they're keeping the me, out. dude. After I, <laughs> Jeff, I don't think you realize how much shit I get for for doing this <laughs> podcast, man. Like people are like, you don't know anything about music. You you all you only know Stone Temple Pilots and Guns and Roses. I hate you, you because you hated MGMT, Oracular Spectacular, and I'm like, I'm just a fucking comic. So all of yeah. the fleece army out there that that sends me the nice messages to keep going. Yeah. You are literally keeping me going. Uh, but please join we the read Patreon. everything. Yeah, please, please join please the Patreon. We yeah. are hungry. You're allowed um, to learn. You don't have to be an expert to do this show. You just have to be a fan. Exactly. Yeah. And that's but but people think that like they think that rolling stone like picked me and they're like why would rolling stone pick this idiot and i'm just like i just i just want to listen to some music and talk to my buddies i love you jeff i can't thank you enough for coming on man this is this thank you for taking the time out have the greatest time in ohio um i was lucky enough to see uh at the stand on the day that paul mooney died and i mean you want to talk about uh, it's like watching that live and having him talk about Paul Mooney's career and what Paul Mooney did for comedy on that day. It was, dude, I just realized it. Not only was I there for Chappelle and with Paul Mooney at the stand, but when the day Carlin died, I was at the comedy store and Chappelle went up in the OR and, and it's just, I don't know, man. I feel like all these moments I'm supposed to be there. Do you know what I mean? Like well, you're I here. Really you're here things. through me, buddy. You're feeling the glamour of my Yellow Springs uh, hideout over here. <laughs> nice. Gorgeous. And, nice. Uh, I love you. And comics were like a tribe, buddy. So uh, you're here in spirit. Morty, it was great Thank to see you, you too, buddy. Dude, please give my best to Bob. I will. Too. I will. I'm out here with Bob. Love you guys. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Jeff Ross, ladies and gents. Follow him on Twitter at Real Jeffrey Ross. Follow him on Instagram at The Real Jeffrey Ross. Make sure you check out, because uh, we talked about it, Jeff Roast Criminals on Paramount Plus. Go to RoastmasterGeneral.com for any upcoming shows and tickets. And check out his podcast, Thick Skin. All right, so we just listened to Johnny Cash from 1994. For new music pick this week, we got Coulter Wall. He's a Canadian singer-songwriter who lists Johnny Cash as a major influence. Steve Earle called Coulter the best young singer-songwriter I've seen in 20 years. And that's coming from Steve Earle, the outlaw. And he's been praised by Rick Rubin as well, so this guy's legit. You're listening to the song Summer Wages, and you can find the links on the website, 500podcast.com. Oh, I'm sorry, the500podcast.com. Do any of you even go there? Who knows? We pay for it. Enjoy it. All right, if you want your music featured on the 500 and uh, you're influenced by one of these bands or these albums, man, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. And you put that album and the artist in the put the album and the artist in the thing, the subject line, and we'll we'll put it up here. Why not, right? Guess what next week is? Anger is a gift. That's right, you party people, motherfuckers. Rage Against the Machine Week. One of, I'm friends with two of the members in the band, man. Fucking Brad, Tom Marillo. This is gonna be a good one. Uh, this is a record, man. This is a fucking record that changed my life, and it probably changed yours, too. So make sure you listen to the self-titled debut by Rage, and uh, do your homework, because it's a good one. Stay fleecy. Doodle doodle. Hello, the beer parlor. Down around 
hookers standing watchfully waiting by the door. Gonna work on the towboats with my slippery city shoes. Lord, I swore I would never do that again. In the gray fog-bound straits where the cedars stand watching, I'll be far off and gone like summer waves. This is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. 
So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Next Chapter Podcasts.